You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the House and our events on our website. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Ose Lapugulan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. How do you write about violence? In The History of Violence, Edouard Louis explores violence between individuals, the violence of oppression, of racism, and the violence of the police and the justice system. Violence is also central in the two critically acclaimed novels of Maasa Mengiste, Beneath the Lion's Gaze and The Shadow King. Mengiste is a writer, an essayist, and she's been a professor in creative writing at Princeton and Queens College in New York. And Louise's book made a deep impression on Mengiste upon reading it. And in this personal lecture, she will share her reflections on the novel and more broadly on how we face violence when that violence robs us of language and makes us want to turn away. But before I give the floor to Mengista, I'm happy to give the floor to Edouard Louis. Hello, uh, good afternoon. I am not going to attend uh, Maza's lecture today. Uh, it's the only lecture of the all symposiums that I'm not going to be able to attend. The stories that I uh, recounted in History of Violence, uh, which is a story of a rape, uh, became a too difficult story for me to deal with. Um, I am not strong enough to hear about it. I am not strong enough to carry it along anymore. I did. I hope I, I will be able to do it again in the future. But I, what I want to say is that it's exactly at uh, the core of Maza's work to carry for people some pain they cannot carry anymore. Maza wrote masterpieces about war, violence, trauma, colonial crimes, stories that so many people would not be able to tell. In the literature field, we often ask, um, can we talk on behalf of the others? We rarely ask how important it is to talk on behalf of the others, when those others in question don't have the possibilities, the strength, the power to tell those stories. Mazamengiste is a great writer because she's carrying other people's stories. She makes them possible. And for that, thank you, Maza. I love you and I admire you. Thank you. Thank you all for being here, and I really thank Edouard for trusting me with this and with his story. What we see in the photograph, 76-year-old Antonina Pomazanko, staring down at the body of her daughter, Tatiana, in a shallow grave, planks of wood frame the bottom right of the picture. A bigger pile rests on the left-hand side. 
poking through a thin layer of dried leaves and dirt are Tatiana's legs, clad in dark blue sweatpants, her feet covered in thick woolen socks and clogs. Tatiana's head and torso are wrapped in plastic, and Antonina's eyes, as she looks down quietly at this strange yet familiar figure on the ground, an expression between shattering grief and incomprehension. She is dressed in a black coat layered on top of a thick wool sweater. A bright blue scarf covers her head. It is a cold winter day, but she is unaware of the weather. She is focused on the body lying at her feet. The concrete sidewalk on which she stands is unbroken, but she gives the impression of struggling to maintain her balance, as if some other greater force is threatening to lift her up and drag her away. Antonina is in front of her house, inside her gate in Bucha, Ukraine, but those are geographical facts that say nothing about where she really is, in a brutally distorted place where a young woman can step outside of her gate, imagining that she will greet the Ukrainian fighting force, only to fall to the ground riddled with bullets from Russian tanks. The logical order of things has broken, and a daughter has died as a result. It is an impossible knowledge, a stupefying location, and in the picture... Antonina's figure tips slightly forward, pressed down by that invisible weight. If we look long enough, something else becomes clear. Those wooden boards that rest on either side of Tatiana's body once covered a shallow grave. They were pushed aside for reporters, for us. She is aware of the camera, and in front of it. She has done the unimaginable. She has opened the grave where her daughter rests, perhaps a grave she dug herself, to let us see what has been taken from her. She is exposing this private moment for the sake of something she cannot yet vocalize. Reporters will find the words to explain this moment in terms of political aggression and military strategy. They will speak of personal devastations and escalating tensions. They will gather the facts and set them in order and present Antonina and Tatiana as examples of the casualties of this war. They will be symbols, coded visual language for what we must know so that we can empathize and push for change. I suspect that Antonina is aware of this. She is a mother in mourning, but she is opening the doors of this private grief and inviting us in. She is sharing her story for the same reason so many of us share ours. We hope that others will listen and speak back a version of what they have heard and that this will lead us towards greater understanding. We seek others to reflect to us what seems most elusive or confounding about our lives. We hope that in the soft whispers that filter back our own stories, 
The words of others will make things clear, will make them bearable. By inviting us in, Antonina is also making a silent plea for us not only to listen, but to join her in mourning. It is a collective communal sorrow that she seeks, so she does not bear the burden of this devastation alone. In order for this to happen, however, she knows she must do the unbearable, the unheard of. She must dig up her daughter's body. She must reveal the plastic wrap that she used to cover the torso and head so that we have a hint of where the bullets hit. She must leave the awkward stretch of her daughter's legs as they are so we can begin to understand that this was no way to die. There was no grace in the fall. She will shift inside herself and become something unmotherly because what logic in the world could answer for this? What promise of motherhood could prepare her for this? She becomes a thing unworded, separate from logic and language. Then she steps back and lets us look for as long as we want. Understanding the ethics of privacy and burial, she is breaking with her daughter, with herself. Every gaze, a new violation. How does one make sense of all of this? Edouard, in History of Violence, asks a similar question when he tries to make sense of what happened the night he meets and invites a man, Redda, to his apartment, and Redda later rapes then tries to strangle him. How does one begin to grapple with the violations of that night and of the many ways that history and poverty have inflicted their own forms of violence on Redda, son of an immigrant, part of a population that is marginalized and discriminated against in France. Where does the violence of that night really begin? And yet in the midst of these larger questions, there are the personal ones, the private griefs that must be addressed. And it is difficult for Edouard to comprehend the many temporal shifts in that room that night. The firm borders that maintained order between past and present, between visible and invisible, have snapped. Somewhere in that break, consensual, consensual sex edged into violation and violence, pushed forward by memory. He, too, tries to remember things. He tries to remember as best as he can what exactly happened and when to cause the change in the interactions, to call forth the brutalities, but he cannot. He feels caught in another older narrative about migration and racism, all of it unfolding in his bedroom, on his body. And when he goes to speak to the police, he realizes with a different kind of horror that he has become a participant in their narrative about immigrants, about those they imagine to be violent by nature, born into this. There are languages being spoken that he cannot understand, and at the same time, he is in pain, and he is struggling. So he tells his sister the story, and at her house, he stands on the other side of a shut door, 
and listens to his experience filtered through her words, given comprehensible, bearable, if not completely accurate, shape and form. At first, she says, he doesn't take it seriously. <coughs> when Redda puts the scarf around his throat and pulls, he doesn't think he means it. She adds a bit later, he didn't think he was actually being strangled. He didn't believe it, because until now he never thought of Redda as a thief, much less a killer. What she means is this. There are promises we must tell ourselves in order to get up and go about our day. There are assurances, however fragile and false, we must believe in in order to wake up and step outside of our doors. There is an order to the world that we both uphold and plead for. If unbroken, it is easy for the routine to slide into conviction, for that conviction to solidify into an immovable truth about our own strengths and invincibility. We forget what we would rather not think about. We imagine a place of greater security and convince ourselves it exists and that it is the same for everyone. The parameters of what is possible shrink and become rigid, tighten around us like a fortress. Like a photograph, all else beyond the frame drops away and disappears. And so we live, absent a kind of vocabulary that can account for those unexpected, sudden devastations. Maybe it is safety that Edouard is thinking about as he is standing with his ear pressed against the door, overhearing his own story in his sister Clara's voice. She has listened to him carefully, and she conveys the details to her silent husband with impressive accuracy, if not complete truth. He silently corrects her misinterpretations and exaggerations, challenging her, her version, even as he is aware that she is finding the words that he cannot. She is helping him find the vocabulary with which to describe what happened to him when he was alone, without language or witness. In her retelling, that Edouard that the narrator has tried to leave behind in the dark apartment, in the police station, in the hospital exam room, that Edouard that the narrator tried to scrub clean and wash away, rises from the debris of violence and quivers in the dim, tender light of possibility and maybe future healing. What strikes me immediately about this moment which opens history of violence is the door. It looms large in my imagination, dominating that opening scene of a book that is not about doors, but what happens behind them. I imagine it thick, solid, bearing the evidence of years of use. I cannot help thinking that it has spent decades serving as a barrier between rooms, between activities, between one set of experiences and another. That door is a physical thing, dead and inhuman, that separates Edouard from his sister while she speaks. But it is something more. One. It is a shield that he has propped up between the person he is at the moment 
and the one he was back then. Two, it is a metaphor for the unfathomable gap between present and past. Three, it is the landscape that rises up always between experience and word, between memory and language. They say we can never leave language behind, Edouard tells us. They say language is the essence of being human and that it conditions everything. They say you can't go outside it, for language has no exterior. They say we don't think first and then organize our thoughts into language later on, for language is what allows us to think. But if language is the essence of being human, then for those 50 seconds when he was killing me, I don't know what I was. He is reminding us that we are nothing without language. Language constitute, consists of those words we formulate when we speak and write. But it is also something else far more expansive. It is the organizing structure of our very existence. It shapes who we imagine we are and how we communicate this. Though he cannot escape language, though he cannot decipher all of the competing histories and narratives in that room on that night, Edouard has located the point where, where language ruptures, where it all becomes too much and breaks under the weight. He has reached the limits of the mind. There is no logic to explain what is happening. There is no meaning that it can encompass the vast, complex, visible, and invisible histories and lives that hover in the corners of that room, drawing the walls close, shrinking every path for escape. There are no promises and oaths to rely on. They have been broken, and he is in free fall, tumbling down towards a new and terrifying topography, one that functions on fear and pain. That door, a shield, and a landscape, a sturdy bridge. For years, I have been stuck in a place I have not been able to fully articulate. It is not a geographic location as much as an all-encompassing question that I have carried with me wherever I go. When the thought or question comes, it transports me to a sandy hill where I am standing alone beneath an unbearably hot sun. In the distance, I see a young man. I see several from various parts of the world, dressed in orange jumpsuits, turning to face me. They are frightened, confused, and between us is a terrain of unspeakable grief of unheard-of terror. I know what is going to happen. It has happened to so many others like them, prisoners held captive by ISIS and paraded in front of a paralyzed, horrified world. I know that once they are forced to kneel, we will all turn away and leave the cameras to record their deaths without witness. I know all of this, and I feel that I should stay rooted in this terrible place, a breach in the earth, but I turn away too. I leave them alone.
I understand that our glance away was intended to be an act of mercy and of defiance. We were told the families of these victims begged us to look instead at other images of them at happier moments in their lives. And we did. We shifted our gaze quickly, pushing against the noise and roar of hatred and malice. We lifted those other peaceful moments and raised the volume of our tributes. We sought to drown out the bigotry and brutality. We shouted into the chaos as a final act of respect for those prisoners who were turned from human beings to political symbols. We refused to be pawns in that final degradation. We refused to look at them in their final moments and let fear permeate our lives. Instead of remembering them in the last brutal moments of life, we gave to the victims the right to be remembered as they had been in a different time, in a different world. We restored the language that could be used to describe them. We held it up to tender light and kept it free of cruelty. We offered them and ourselves a semblance of grace. In looking away, we tried to meld a different kind of meaning to that moment. We insisted on remembering the human beings, not the political symbols they had become. We pressed ourselves against that door and shouted to them through that great divide, imagining that in this way we had healed that terrifying rupture in language. But here's the lang here is the question that I cannot seem to leave behind. What might have happened if instead we had moved towards that abomination and dragged it into light and held it up? What might have happened to the possibilities of language to withstand catastrophe and upheaval if we had insisted on testing and broadening its parameters back then? Where might we be today if we had not left language in the hands of those who were distorting it? What might we have a better vocabulary to understand what is happening today? I am not saying we should have looked, but I am asking what is to be done with this terrible silence that we left in the wake of those awful visions. If we are afraid to push the limits of the mind, to push the bounds of language to accommodate the world that we are in, how can we begin to shape meaning so that it can withstand what is surely coming for it now and in the future? How do we prepare ourselves and another generation for the forces that wield language like a weapon if we limit our own vocabulary for what is possible? But here is something. I have seen too much, and I suspect you have too. We have witnessed the unbearable and the debris of so much violence, so much history, continues to accumulate in Ethiopia, in Ukraine, in America, in Mexico, in Syria, in Iran, on the borders of Europe, in the Mediterranean, and it goes on. I turn away from videotaped encounters of police brutality. I shy from photographs of cruelty. 
I turn off the news more often now. I am more vulnerable, more tender, scarred by these years. I do not want to see anymore. And sometimes I wonder if this means I have given up on the potential of language. I once believed that we who are able, who still have the strength and presence of mind that language gives us, have an obligation to look at those human beings who were forced to die as political symbols, yet very much alone. I used to think that the act of looking returned a semblance of their dignity back to them. The gaze, and not just a casual gaze, but one informed by knowledge and mercy, was more powerful than any weapon wielded in the hands of an angry assailant. I used to believe language was a door, and that it could both shield and usher us towards a landscape which we could cross to stand beside those who were left powerless. But now I am not so sure, and I am afraid that it might be too late. Is it possible to salvage all that we have lost, to save all those whom we have lost? Look. There is swift-footed Achilles, raging on the fields of Troy, chasing Hector in fury and grief. Achilles demands vengeance for his beloved Patroclus' death at the hands of Hector. The gods watch his relentless pursuit, speaking amongst themselves, weighing questions of justice against unjustified revenge. Achilles kills Hector, but death is not enough for him. Achilles must punish and destroy that thing that continues to exist, tucked away in that dead body. He drags Hector's corpse around Patroclus' funeral pyre repeatedly, mocking the prince of Troy, desecrating the memory of this beloved husband and father who found respite from the war in the warmth of his home. Achilles has gone too far, and his actions do not go unnoticed by the gods. Here's the Iliad, book 24. But Apollo pitied Hector, dead man though he was, and warded all corruption off from Hector's corpse. Divine intervention stops the corpse from further defilement. Achilles has broken one of the most intrinsic tenets of warfare. A body, even one that is dead, especially one that is dead, demands a certain respect. A corpse still retains the memory of its former self, and that memory demands some semblance of its earlier dignity. Even a dead body carries within it a history of language, of words, of thought, and emotion. Antonina looks at her daughter as the rubble of tanks gets louder on the road in front of their house in Bucha, Ukraine. She watches Tatiana rush outside, eager to greet what she thinks are approaching Ukrainian forces. Antonina hears the gate open, then the sound of gunfire, the smell of smoke. Perhaps, too, her daughter's startled cries, drowned out by Russian tanks that continue down the road. She rushes out of the house, calling her daughter's name, already aware of an awful truth. Time collapses. Every past day before this one disappears. The future has been instantly erased. 
There is nothing now except that body at that gate. There is nothing to do but those things you do with a body. Care for it and wait for a day when one can properly mourn. And in the meantime, send your grief out into the world. Announce the death. Hold up the crime and injustice. Make of your daughter's dead body a statement for the living. Force them to share this burden with you, to bear the oppressive weight of witnessing. You are not enough to handle this alone. This grief is too ancient and cunning. Lift the wooden boards and push up the plastic wrapping. Allow your daughter's thick woolen socks and black clogs to be viewed by thousands of strangers around the world. In this way, a language might be built, fragmented and incomplete, but stable enough to one day carry the full expression of your fury and sorrow. To be seen, you understand, is part of the long journey to justice. The body must be made known. The spirit must be recognized. This is what Antonina knows, that this memory asks something of the living. It places specific expectations on both loved one and enemy. It claims its own kind of force, one that pushes back against complete annihilation and disappearance. This is what propels a grieving Priam to his knees to kiss the hand of Achilles, his son's murderer, and beg for his Hector's body back. This is what compels a mother to unearth her daughter's body and display it for the cameras. In the long continuum of catastrophe and violence that is history, it is never too late to acknowledge, to pause, to remember. A corpse is still worthy of our recognition. This is its most powerful and most demanding final act, that silent but unrelenting request to be recognized and to be honored, to be witnessed and made known again and again and again. It is never too late to call forth justice and make of it a bridge connecting the past to the future. Here is Edouard, struggling for life, fighting his way towards a language at the limits of his imagination, searching for words that can offer him shelter. He is alone, his terror unfolding in the private space of his own bedroom, without witness. A human being walking down a path towards something else that he cannot recognize and cannot imagine. He is something hovering between the living and the dead. In her essay, The Iliad, or The Poem of Force, Simone Weil sets out to define the difference between a living person and a corpse. There are degrees of deadness, she asserts, one that ranges from a corpse, that human turned into a thing by force, to a living person who has a soul, but is held by a force that only threatens to kill it. The effect of that anticipated death, Weil contends, turns a human being into a thing while they are still alive, pushes them out of the land of the living, and moves them into a territory 
where they are suspended between realities. They become trapped in a terrifying supernatural unreality where they are both dead and alive, split in half, with one part hurled into a confusing space where it must wander without guidance along a road that moves it closer and closer to becoming a corpse. Edouard pressed against the door, listening to Clara, his sister. He says, Today, all I have left is language. I've lost the fear. I can say I am afraid, but the words can only be a failure, a hopeless attempt to re retrieve the feeling, the truth of the fear. While his sister has found words to describe that night, Edouard cannot seem to find a way back into language, a cohesive kind of expression that melds meaning to emotion, then translates it to the self. To say he is afraid does not mean he can recall or experience that fear. It is not only truth that has come untethered, but also a kind of memory that allows us to stand in front of past events and feel again what we once felt, whether it is joy or terror. History has been stripped of meaning. What language can accommodate this in-between space? Let us imagine a young woman in Ethiopia, barely out of high school, in the early 1970s. She stands up and walks to her mother's house. It is a simple act, and she is sure-footed, her petite figure upright and steady. Overhead, the sun is bright, the air is crisp. There are no scents except what should be there on a warm day, flowers and trees, the dusty road, and in the distance, a hint of the sharp odor of livestock grazing on grass. At the house, she hugs her mother, then they sit down. No words pass between them as they hold hands in the warm embrace of the sun. Then the young woman gets up and walks out the door and goes to visit her grandmother and then her aunt. Each time, the silence and the intent gazes, the sunlight, the love. Then she walks back to the place where she began and curls up on the dirt floor and tries to sleep. Darkness descends. The odors rise. The pains return to her body. The bruises spread once more across her skin. Her feet twist, bloody and nearly broken again, and she is back in the prison cell, locked behind a thick door once more. This is my mother's childhood friend, the woman who is also my godmother, someone I call my aunt. We sit across from each other in India, far from Ethiopia, far from those days when she was a young revolutionary imprisoned by a brutal regime. I have come to visit her after years of not hearing from her, and she, after we embrace, stands back to stare at me in silence. I read your book, she says. She is talking about Beneath the Lion's Gaze, set during the revolution that began in Ethiopia in 1974. 
a revolution in which she took part, throwing herself into subversive activities and protests that would land her in jail. I read it all, she says. Then she pauses and asks simply, how did you know what it was like in that prison? I have no answer to her question. What can I say that would adequately acknowledge her own experience? In my silence, a gulf rises between us, and I am certain that any words I speak, any explanation I can provide about the imagination and language will tumble into that great breach. And so I shake my head and ask her a question instead, hoping that what she says will bridge that gap that is darker and deeper than anything I can imagine. How did you survive? I ask. She smiles then. After they questioned me and put me back in my cell, she says, I opened the door and walked to my mother's house. She pivots away from me and takes a few steps. Then I went to my grandmother's house. She takes a few more steps in the sunlit room where we are standing in India and makes another turn. Then I walked back to my bed and slept. I do not have a response except to stand there with my arms at my side in front of her, the two of us wading through time and space to gaze down at a young woman curled into her body while her mind wanders someplace else. Over the years, I have thought often about this moment, about what it means to be in that in-between state and decide to leave the body so dangerously close to becoming a thing, being to leave it behind and to disconnect from a part of yourself and let it go. The image that came to mind back then was of a tree cracking down the middle, one half dragging itself away while the other roots deeper into the ground, stabilizing itself. I can understand now why I paused at the image of Edouard standing at that door when I read the first pages of History of Violence. Without being fully aware of it, my mind was listening to the echoes of another conversation, another memory, and traveling back in time to help me stabilize and comprehend both moments, past and present, helping me to form a language for the future. My aunt's experience hints at something greater than language, more expansive than vocabulary and logical thought. In the silence of that dark room where she was left to survive or die, she gathered her strength and willed the room to stop spinning. She made time stand still. Inside became outside, and every barricade obeyed her, do her orders and collapsed to make a way for her to leave. In the process, she turned away from horror and gazed at that thing inside of her that I have come to call a mercy, a pocket of grace contained within each of us, ready to unfurl and break down doors and widen paths. Then my aunt set herself free. I am looking now at Antonina, 
standing quietly in front of her daughter's body, insisting on our witness to blunt the agony of her loss. I am seeing Edouard standing silently on the other side of that door, listening to his terror unfold but not backing away, and standing on that hill, turning away from those orange-clad men, seeking another place to rest my eyes, I am beginning to consider something new. Perhaps in our respectful reluctance to look at the aftermath of unheard-of cruelties, we were too quick to shut down every possibility of how to reckon with it. Maybe we moved too hastily towards a commemoration of pleasant memories. Maybe in that haste we fell victim to the very power we were trying to overcome. Maybe we moved with the speed and momentum dictated by the perpetrators of that violence instead of our own. What I mean is we did not pause. We fought noise with our own shouts. We were impatient with our fear. We could not sit with our stunned, paralyzing horror. We wanted to patch up the hideousness of the crimes as quickly as possible and focus on those memories of the victims that could take us out of our stupefying horror and into something resembling peace, no matter how false it was. ISIS not only intended to rob us of language, but it intended to carve away that space where the imagination rests, that place from which we could fight for a restitution of the past and the construction of a better future. In our panic, we gave our imagination no room to breathe, to expand and become both a shield and a new terrain. Our speechlessness felt like a permanent silence rather than a gathering of the strength needed for a more subversive and defiant language. We, mis we mistook grief for weakness and quietness for muted defeat. We did not imagine that rather than a path back to the same language, a new road altogether could open up one constructed in the mouth of cruelty, made stronger by its proximity to it, made more brilliant by how dark the chamber from which we would emerge. We did not give our imagination a chance to tear apart their weapon. But it is not too late. We have now. Antonina, standing in front of her daughter's body, is insisting on preserving her daughter's memory, even as she is exposing the corpse. She is determined to forge a new meaning from what the Russian bullets left behind, insisting that we see the corpse and see how it still remains a human being, someone's beloved rather than a spectacle, and someone's victim. I think that Antonina sees what has taken me so long to realize, that in sorrow, even one that is wordless rests a reckoning, a language of justice. And my aunt, standing up and opening the door to her cell, is reminding me that there is something else beyond language, crafted from it, but outside of it. And it emerges when we become speechless, 
when we lose our words and cannot bear to witness even ourselves. At the end of History of Violence, Edouard is sitting on his bed in his apartment after police finish searching for fingerprints and DNA. His friend, Geoffroy, comes inside and sits next to him. They can think of nothing to say. Edouard cannot manage more than a few words at a time, but his friend stays, waiting for Edouard to fall asleep. The two friends let the words fall away until silence provides its own shelter, opens a path towards shared grief. And look, here, a mother stands by her open gate, grieving an immeasurable loss. She turns her head and sees, walking down the road, upright and steady, another young woman. That young woman comes to her on her way to her own mother's house, and no words pass between them. No language is necessary, only a recognition. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek.